Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today political consultant Warren Kinsella calls Justin Trudeau's handling of the China election interference issue transparency at its worst. Insolvency trustee Mike Braga looks at new borrowing numbers and reminds us of the importance of the household budget. And nursing school dean Dwayne Pettyjohn wants to increase the number of male nurses in our healthcare system. So, let's get started. Warren Kinsella joining us from Ontario. Warren, the author of a column in the uh, Post Media Papers a few days ago entitled, How Can Justin Trudeau Stand in Judgment of Himself? Natural laws are considered so fundamental they cannot ever be debated as the China spectacle rolls on. Warren Kinsella, good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Well, I'm fine, thanks, Warren. Good to have you back with us today. It's been quite a week watching the, the dance in Ottawa, and I don't think I've ever seen quite uh, quite as vigorous a dance from anybody in a very, very long time as the Liberals scramble to cover up what the whole country is knowing. Let's talk specifically about the riding of Don Valley North for a few moments, because now we've learned that, uh, that not only is Mr. Trudeau in trouble with perhaps a member of his caucus uh, being involved in some nefarious activities with the government of China. So is Doug Ford. And one of his uh, caucus members, Vincent Key, has stepped aside. Han Dong for the Liberals remains in, in office. Talk to us a little bit about Don Valley North. And when Global News has been reporting this for months, what do you understand it to mean this morning, Warren? Well, they, yesterday was a big it was a big development. A lot of people in BC may not have heard of Vincent Cobb, a member of the provincial parliament uh, here in in Ontario, not a cabinet minister, but he was a parliamentary assistant, effectively. So he kind of a junior cabinet minister, right. and then and then Glo- global as it is done for some weeks now broke the news that this man had gotten too close to the Chinese regime. There's allegations of receipt of monies, thousands and thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. to interfere in the Canadian electoral process and now the provincial electoral process. So he's gone. Um, He is out of the the Progressive Conservative Caucus in Ontario. Right. And I think that's going to create tremendous pressure on Trudeau to do likewise with his member, who has also been alleged to have been gotten too close to the Chinese regime. So this story, it just keeps on going. And I I think Trudeau is dreaming in Technicolor if he thinks that it's going to disappear anytime soon. Well, let me quote from the piece you wrote in the paper a couple of days ago. Quote, this week, Trudeau did a reversal that was so complete, so colossal, it is frankly amazing he didn't suffer actual whiplash. (laughs) And uh, not overstating it too too much either, because it has been quite a remarkable turnaround from uh, nothing to see here to all of a sudden, well, first we're going to go after the whistleblowers, uh, and then we're going to try the racist card, which didn't work. So now they're they're being confronted more and more on a daily basis with with the facts, and the facts are starting to pile up, Warren. And this is this is the point where uh, the special rapporteur gets involved. Talk to us about what you understand that to mean. Well, Trudeau had an announcement with a gaggle of his ministers nodding their heads behind him earlier this week. So he basically, the whiplash was, this is a guy, as you pointed out, was refusing to do anything, saying there was no problem, everybody should just move on, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to have an inquiry into the Chinese election interference story. Well, he did a total reversal, complete reversal this week, and is now announcing that he's going to do what he refused to do previously. However, 
uh, I and others have got a big problem with it, and this is kind of my legal background, I think, coming into play here, which is that, you know, you're in law, in the most basic law of all, is you're not allowed to judge yourself. You know, it's got to be somebody who's at arm's length, somebody who is objective, somebody who is not you. Mm-hmm. And the big problem that a lot of us have got is what basically Trudeau announced is, well, I'm going to decide who is going to investigate this thing. I'm going to decide how much they get paid. I'm going to decide their terms of reference and their timeline. And, uh, you know, everybody should be satisfied with that. Well, we're not. That's not how the system works. You want an example of how the system works properly, you know, under Donald Trump, of all people, in 2016, when there were allegations of Russian election interference, you know, Trump was against it, but an official within the U.S. Department of Justice made the determination that there needed to be an independent investigation. That became the Robert Mueller investigation. Right. went on for two years yes. involving FBI agents and lawyers and professionals and forensic accountants. And it led to 40 indictments of individuals, prominent individuals, who had received money from the Russians. We need to do likewise. This happened just not in one election. This is 2019 and 2021. We need to know who got money, when they got it, and we also need to know what the prime minister knew and when he knew it, and did he act on what CSIS was telling him. Let's take a moment to talk about the Mueller report, if you will, Warren, because it, 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 it's germane to the, the point you make about judging yourself. The Mueller report, when it was finally written by the former director of the FBI, was made public eventually. Uh, who was Mueller reporting to? He was reporting to the attorney general. That would be the person in charge of the Department of Justice. Here in Canada, right. this special rapporteur official will report to Justin Trudeau, not even to Parliament, as I understand it. What's your take on it? Well, that is what's happening, and that's, you know, yet more evidence that this they're going about this all the wrong way. Like, if Trudeau wants this story to end, and, you know, there's good reason for him to want that, you know, it's now showing up in public opinion polling. Yesterday, Angus Reid and Abacus both reported that a majority of Canadians want a public inquiry, and that's not just partisan conservatives. Right. 72% of conservatives want an inquiry, but they found that 71% of liberals want a public inquiry, too. That's something that doesn't happen very often. So Trudeau needs to take it seriously, and one way of doing that is have a truly arms-length investigation by an independent individual or body in the way that the Americans did it in 2016, 2017. He's not doing that here, and it's not going to work because guys like you and me and also the intelligence agencies who look like you know they're the source of a lot of these leaks mm-hmm. are not going to be satisfied by that. And these leaks, you know, just so everybody's clear, we don't know, I, you know, I'm not the reporter who's been doing the fine work at the Globe or the Global News on this. This is, you know, it looks like it's CSIS and maybe somebody in foreign intelligence agencies like CIA or what have you who are disapproving of the way Trudeau's handling this thing and they're doing the leaks. Like, it's just not going to stop until Trudeau takes it seriously. Well, you know, and we've, and if you go back just a very few months, uh, we saw this incident, this international situation arise where Canada was left out, deliberately left out of the conversation when the AUKUS agreement came up between Canada, uh, sorry, the United States, the UK, and Australia vis-a-vis Chinese, uh, China and defense and so on. Canada was deliberately dropped from the conversation and not included in any of it. Joe Biden is coming to town in a couple of weeks. Do you think this is going to come up in the chats that they're going to have one-on-one? 
I think the chances of this not coming up are zero percent. It is going to come up. The Americans have publicly expressed, including under Joe Biden, it wasn't just the Trump administration, the degree to which the Trudeau government was cozy with China. Mm-hmm. The, there was no G7 leader that was you know, basically sucking up to the Chinese regime more than Justin Trudeau. Well, you know, he did that for years, going back to 2013, you know, when he was seeking the Liberal Party leadership and said he admired the basic Chinese dictatorship. It's an awful thing to say Mm -hmm. to Chinese Canadian community. But anyway, he I think he's learned now that they're not his friends, the two Michaels and and all of the things that the Xi and the Chinese regime have done. But he's still not taking it seriously enough. And at this point, the thing I don't get is like, Dude, like Justin, you know, if I were advising him, the person who's being most hurt by this story is you. You are now losing liberal voters. You are now the media is all of the media, including you know the Toronto Star and CBC are reporting on this stuff daily. Mm-hmm. The public's against you. And I've you know, I've talked to members of the Liberal Caucus this week and they're very nervous about the story as well. It's not going away. He needs to do the right thing, which is have a proper arm's length, independent judicial inquiry into what took place here. Yeah, very quickly here, two final questions to you, because there's been a lot of speculation that Trudeau was going to go, first of all, uh, early uh, to the next federal election, and he's going to stick around because the ego demands that he take on Poilievre, whom he figures he can beat. Uh, I would imagine most of those plans are gone by now. Oh, yeah, I think that's shredded. I mean, he's lost the NDP. Even the NDP is saying, you know, who are his partners and what I like to call the axis of weasel. Mm-hmm. They, they, he has lost them as well. Every single party in the House of Commons, including the Bloc Québécois, not just the Conservatives, are saying we need to have an inquiry into this thing. There's only one political party that's refusing to do so. And that's Justin Trudeau's liberals. I think he is dreaming in technicolor if he thinks this story is going to go away. Google this one, friends. It's a great read. How can Justin Trudeau stand in judgment of himself? Written by our guest, Warren Kinsella. Warren, great to have you back. We appreciate your time on a Saturday morning. Thanks, my friend. Great to hear your voice. Folks at Equifax Canada, the credit reporting agency, released some new numbers a couple of days ago, and some of them are pretty staggering. Check this one out. Credit card balances increased just over 15% year over year and crossed $100 billion for the first time ever. Total consumer debt rose more than 6% during this time, reaching well over $2 trillion. Currently here in B.C., non-mortgage debt, the average non-mortgage debt, sits at just a whisker under twenty. $2,000. These are impressive and intimidating numbers, daunting perhaps as well. Here to talk more about it and ma- navigating the maze is Mike Braga, Senior Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee with BDO, First Call Debt Solutions. Mike, good morning. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. It's been a long time since you and I had a chat. Uh, what did you make of these Equifax numbers? I'm sure no surprises given the business that you're in, but still some pretty stunning numbers, Mike. There are some stunning numbers, and I think we need to unpack them a little bit. Some of this was expected in terms of the increase in credit use because our immigration has, has uh, immigration policy has changed a little bit, and so we are welcoming a lot of newcomers into the area. So with that... You know, you will start seeing some increase in credit use as they're coming in and, and availing themselves of what's available to them. Sure, yeah. My, con- my, my concern is the trend that we're seeing, like the overall trend that we're seeing, which is 
the use of credit cards is increasing. Um, defaults and delinquency rates are also increasing. But the amount that we're paying on our credit cards is decreasing. So more, more and more people, and especially over the last quarter of 2022, as I was unpacking the Sequifax report, more and more of them are just paying the minimum balance. Yeah. And that's a concern. And so what that's suggesting to me is that, realistically speaking, inf- the inflationary increases, the interest rate increases, you know, it's far outpacing what we're able to sustain in our, in our income. Uh, on and our income increases as well. So, you know, we have to start looking at that all-consuming budget again and, and start seeing how we can start making ends meet. Right. I want to I will come back to the delinquencies rather in just a moment, Mike. But I wanted to talk about HELOCs, those home equity lines of credit, because, of course, they're a lifesaver for a lot of homeowners, many of whom, of course, have just gone through mortgage renewals and are, are dealing with uh, increased monthly payments or perhaps extended terms. Uh, how are HELOCs being affected by all of this? Well, it's quite interesting because I was doing some research about the HELOCs, uh, given this report, especially in the in the Vancouver and BC area, and they're being used in two ways. Like first and foremost, many people are using the HELOC in order to to refinance, uh, so, you know, to to refinance, refinance and pay down debt, mm-hmm. um, and, and to just you know tap into the equity in their homes, and and so that's kind of interesting to me because we're trading one form of debt for another, um, and, and if we don't get the the underlying budget under control, that just means the debt is going to increase again. So, you know, that's concerning. But the other piece that I was uh, that I was hearing as I was doing some research is that many older uh, individuals are assisting their children by getting HELOCs on their property to help their uh, their children get into the housing market. The bank and of so mom and dad, Mike, right? The bank of, exactly. So you have people in their, you know, later 50s, early 60s who, who are taking out financing on their property with not a lot of runway left in their working careers mm-hmm. in order to assist their children. And so if you don't have a plan on how to rebuild, how to repay that, the concerning piece is we know that for that generation, income is going to, um, is going to decrease and they're going to struggle at some point in the future. So we really want to start considering the repayment of that not just taking it out for the short term. And I would imagine in some households, Mike, that's an uncomfortable situation, an uncomfortable part of the conversation. Mom and dad, I need some dough to buy a house, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we get that. Well, we, here's what we can do for you. But we're going to need you to repay that. In a lot of cases, mom and dad don't. They got lots of dough and it doesn't matter. But in some cases, as you point out, people with not a lot of runway left are, are taking, mm-hmm. assuming some extra risk here. It's not out of line to make a repayment arrangement, is it? Absolutely not. And it's extremely important that then you do start doing things to protect yourself. So if you find yourself as being a parent who's helping your child um, to, to purchase their own home, you know, having that discussion and looking at it as, as a business transaction is extremely important to protect yourself. So, you know, would you consider taking out a mortgage on their new property as a second mortgage, mm. just in case, you know, you know, things go sideways for them in, in the later future? These are tough discussions, and I get it. You don't want to have this with family members. But I think we have to start thinking about it, and we have to start thinking about what repayment looks like. So the expectations are set right at the beginning when everybody is happy about you know, and looking at the future so that if things do start turning sideways, you already have a plan in place. And the co- that conversation is less uncomfortable. Absolutely. Let's get back to delinquencies, if you don't mind, for a minute and talk about that. Especially connect these two dots, if you could, Mike, please. Delinquencies and credit 
utilization. Mm-hmm. So credit utilization refers to the amount of credit that we have available to ourselves. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, from a debt-to-income ratio, we're, we're, we're pushing the boundaries. We're using the maximum amount of credit that's available to us. Mm. And so what winds up happening is at some point, the bank says, okay, you've reached your threshold, right? We're not lending you anymore, but your expenses haven't changed. And so if you can't dip into that line of credit or if you, you, know, you, you don't have that line of credit or that credit card accessible anymore, then what we're finding is people are going, you know, going to cash advance places or alternatively, they're not making their payment. Uh, and so that becomes problematic. And so what we're seeing in the last quarter of 20, uh, 2022, insolvency rates, especially consumer proposals, have increased. Mm-hmm. Uh, and specifically in the BC area, you know, we're up about 30%. And so, you know, that's quite alarming as well, because what we're seeing is that everything that's happened post-pandemic and now with inflationary increases, it's all taking its toll. Mike, you also mentioned a moment ago that many people are, are down to making the minimum payment. And a lot of people are convinced that as long as you're making a minimum payment on time every month, your credit score is going to be just fine. That's not necessarily the case, is it? It's not necessarily the case in Sterling. You know, this goes back many, many years when our interest rates were low and Canadians were having a love affair with credit. Like, you know, it was easy to obtain credit and it was easy to make money uh, to to make your minimum monthly payments because the interest, you know, the interest impact wasn't there. Now, with interest rates increasing and banks looking at your debt, like the the debt to income ratio, as interest rates increase and you're making your minimum monthly payments, your balance continues to increase. And so what happens is that ratio, which affects your credit score, goes down. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there is that impact. And so we need to start considering that as well. Mike, I wanted to take a last couple of moments with you. And we do appreciate your time on a Saturday morning. Talk about spring break, which is just kicking off here in B.C. A couple of weeks off, uh, a little more added expense. Some people really go to town on spring break. A lot of people just turn the kids loose in the backyard and say, you see, it's supper time. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about how spring break, A, can impact your finances and B, some positive things that you can do during spring break, especially with, with regard to financial literacy. Yeah, so these last couple of years, uh, we've we've just kind of gone hog wild when it comes to these types of breaks, right? You know, we were deprived for a long time. And so coming out of it, it's just natural that we want to get back to normal as, as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've been seeing studies and BDO put out a study a couple of years ago where, you know, parents were saying, we just want our kids to be happy, so we don't care what we're spending. And so what I'm suggesting is that we start, we need to come back to that B word and, and that's the budget, Right. It's fine to spend over the March break or summer is coming as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's fine to have some spending allocated there. And so what my suggestion is, pick a number that's going to be fit into your budget and it's going to be affordable so you're not putting it on debt. And start thinking creatively about how you can manage that budget and do things that your kids will enjoy. Or better yet, turn the budget over to the kids and say, here's, you know, here's the amount that you can spend over the next March break, like five days. And you need to keep yourself entertained. Go out and be creative and see what you can find that interests you that's going to fit into that. And so what you're doing is you're giving them some runway to start that whole budgeting process and, and, and figure out 
you know, a life skill that they're going to need for, into the future. And of course, you're going to be there for guidance, right? And you're going to you know, make sure that they're not overspending. But, you know, you're, you're actually giving them a tangible experience in terms of a budgeting process. And in terms of the budgeting process, it is never too late to start if uh, intending to teach your kids about it is, is a great excuse for you to sort of get back on track with a budget. So much the better, right? Absolutely. And what you'll find is that kids with the access, you know, they're so internet, they're so mobile friendly and internet, you know, uh, internet savvy that they're going to come up with such creative ideas to save dollars and save money and, and, and to be able to do the things that they enjoy. And the other thing that I suggest is to be a tourist in your own, uh, in your own city. There's a lot of great free activities in Vancouver, um, including the art gallery, you know, you know or go, doing the grouse grind, mm-hmm. you know, as a family. Like, these are things that are, like, tourists come and flock to Vancouver to do these things. And, you know, if, if you start opening your ear, putting your ear to the rails and, and seeing what's available, there's a lot of great free activities that are out there. Yeah, good stuff and great advice, too. Mike Braga, thanks for joining us this morning. Great to have you back with us. Thank you for having me. Only about 10% of the B.C. Nurses Union's 48,000 members are men, close to $5,000. Or 5,000 people, rather. Bumping that number up might help ease a nursing shortage that has resulted in hospital emergency room closures, and there are more of them again this weekend, and backlogs. But societal bias against men in the nursing profession continues. Here to talk more about it is Dwayne Pettyjohn, the Associate Dean in the School of Health and Human Services at Camosun College, who started out uh, as a nurse uh, 20 years in the profession before turning to teaching. Mr. Pettyjohn, Dwayne, good morning and welcome. Thanks, really Nice to be here. Well, it's good to have you with us. A moment of the Dwayne Pettyjohn story, if you would, please. You graduated from UVic with a nursing degree, and you went to work as an ambulance attendant, and somehow or another that turned into being an ER nurse for 20 years. Tell us a story. Yeah, yeah. I started out as an ambulance attendant back in Toronto back in the 80s and then looked at, you know, where else I could go in healthcare and, you know, more variety, more opportunity and, and nursing um, was the avenue I chose. So, yeah, moved to Victoria. I'm originally from D.C. Went to Camosun College in UVic and graduated in 1996. Hard to believe it's uh, that long ago. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. Worked on some general surgical units, but always knew that I wanted to work in the emergency room and then worked there for approximately 20 years before I uh, moved into the role of teaching and uh, been teaching since 2006 and now in more of an administrative role here at Camosa College. So you would know firsthand being a male nurse and having been at it for quite some time before leaving to, to start teaching. Did you encounter, you refer to the stigma in your article, which I picked up in the Victoria Times Colonist. You talk about the stigma, the social stigma against men in the nursing profession. Have you had more than your share of, of, of feedback, negative uh, in your career? Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, within that story, they they were talking about you know four other uh, four of us who were males that uh, had in their individual experience. Mm-hmm. So for some, they've had that stigma. For me uh, personally, I never really experienced that stigma, and I'm not sure you know uh, you know if that was because in Victoria versus the smaller communities, and you look at um, just in general society, and there was lots of relatively speaking, there were where there were male role models within. Uh, where I was employed. So um, I didn't personally experience that stigma that some have, 
but certainly acknowledge that uh, all of our stories are individualized for sure. So it's it, do because you, you at Camosun College now you're back being the associate dean of the school that you once upon a time attended and and graduated yes. from. So there's a nice circle completed for you when you <laughs> it do, is a very when, nice when you have your first year male nursing students uh, now entering and 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 going to college. Uh, do they do they talk to you about the kind of uh, feedback they're getting from just having chosen the profession in the first place? Yeah, and I think it, it's very, just like was in that article, we all have varied experiences mm-hmm. um, around how some may or may not perceive stigma. I think it's, it's lessening for sure. Um, and uh, I think as we see more uh, role models out there within, within nursing, um, that, you know, creates those um, opportunities for those who identify as male and males to see that, that nursing it can be a career for them. It's just not a uh, female field, as it were, right now. Right? Yet, I think. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and yet that has it has that sort of uh, cachet, doesn't it, Dwayne? It has. It, oh, it, if you're going to be a nurse, well, it's 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 a, it's a woman's job. Yeah, I mean, certainly historical. Yeah. Those, those gender biases have been there for sure. I think you know, I like to think that we are breaking them down, and we're starting to see those those barriers uh, break down for whether you're male or female. When we look at the medical profession now where uh, it's about a 50-50 split. We look at other um, professions that were traditionally uh, male, uh, more females are entering there. And I, I think we'll see the same happen in nursing as we, as society starts to see nursing and the, the opportunities that exist in nursing for, for everyone, right? It's just not about, as I indicated in my article, many believe that it was just working in the hospital mm-hmm. where there's so many more opportunities out there for nurses uh, to work, you know, within the hospital or acute care setting, education, government research up north, and nursing can take you uh, to uh, uh, urban center, rurals uh, across Canada, up north, around the world. There's so there's so many opportunities in nursing and. It's a good-paying job as well, with many opportunities. And the government, the provincial government, has, uh, of course, weathered a pandemic along with the rest of us and recognized what's happened to the nursing profession through the... And it was three years ago today, Duane, that the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 to be a pandemic. Interesting timing for our conversation, because in the ensuing three years, we've seen a lot of people leave the nursing profession. And a a lot of the number one reason, frankly, is burnout. Yeah, absolutely, right. We, we've seen that, and, and uh, definitely it, it's put a, a strain on everyone in healthcare, um, and certainly has caused um, many to leave. And it's also, uh, you know, with that as well, somebody, uh, some many re-entered the profession. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I think the one of the silver linings of that, when we look at the nursing shortage, is um, we saw how crucial nurses were to the healthcare system and um, how they were involved in it, and. Um, um, so I think that's going to be one of those positive aspects of seeing that nursing can be a really great career and how crucial it is to uh, the health care of all of us. Um, and so th- hopefully that, yeah, will in- increase those wanting to enter into nursing right. and uh, create more opportunities. And the provincial government, just to follow up on what I started to say, has announced more nursing seats to be added to the existing programs ar- around the province. And you and your colleagues are talking about in terms of recruiting nurses, especially male nurses, to get at get at young men uh, in the high school level, uh, getting to those high school job fairs where they you can compete for their attention attention uh, and possible career designs at an early stage in their in their lives. 
Yeah, absolutely. We want to ensure that, you know, for not only males, but, but all segments of society that they see nursing as a, as a career for them, right? So mm. looking at the, the diversity uh, of our population, ensuring that everyone sees a role for them in nursing, whether you're male or female, you know, minority, indigenous, uh, certainly want to be representative of society and increase those opportunities and, and break down some of those traditional uh, gender uh, barriers that exist. You're at Camosun College and you have a school of nursing, Duane. Uh, is, are you, uh, are, is the demand for seats always full every year? Do you have an overflow year after year after year? We, we do. We do. We take in 160 students per year and generally speaking, we, we you know, get around, you know, between 450 and 550 applicants. Mm. So there's certainly the demand there. Um, it's just uh, ensuring that, uh, that every, again, everyone sees themselves that this could be a career for them, right? And just as within a nursing shortage, we're also in an instructor shortage as well. So, uh, you know, the, they kind of go hand in hand. So we're all working hard to increase our capacity and educate as many nurses as we can and get them out there uh, working and uh, supporting us all. So when you worked as a paramedic, as an ambulance attendant, before you went to nursing school, would that be a, something you could recommend to others who may be considering a field, uh, a career in the field of health care and aren't quite sure where or how to start uh, to do what you did? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's many opportunities to uh, explore what might be if healthcare is going to be a career for you, whether you want to become an ambulance attendant and or paramedic. You can look at becoming a healthcare aide, a licensed practical nurse, mm-hmm. uh, move into nursing. So there's lots of opportunity out there. And, and right now the government is, is funding many people to, to uh, move into the healthcare assistant role. So, again, that's a good starting point to see if that's something that you may be interested in. And um, and then looking at how you can ladder that forward and advancing yourself in your healthcare career. I must tell you, I was surprised that the, of the forty-eight thousand members strong BC Nurses Union, five thousand of those are men. I was surprised that there that, that were there are that many. To be perfectly honest with you, Dwayne, I think that's <laughs> that's really good, and it's only going to grow, isn't it? I, I firmly believe it is going to grow. It's It's been kind of that 10% range, uh, even since I, well, I think it was around 8 or 9% when I started in the field, you know, uh, getting, oh, moving up here to about 30 years. So it's slowly increased right at that 10%. I mean, I think for ourselves, when we look at uh, our students that come into our nursing program, I would, right now on average, right, we're like 15, 18, 20% year in, year out mm-hmm. uh, of those being male students who identify as male. So I think you know, in the coming years, we are going to see that that um, number of, of, of males increase in the nursing profession. I think in today as society, like anything, as we break down those gender barriers, right, that uh, whether you're male or female, you're just going to see nursing as a, as a great career path and great opportunities. And hopefully that's where we get to sooner rather than later. Indeed, and perhaps one of the byproducts of emerging successfully from a pandemic and uh, developing uh, uh, an enhanced appreciation for the healthcare business, period. Uh, that's, that's certainly going to accelerate the process, one can only hope. Dwayne Pettyjohn, thanks for doing this with us this morning. Great to have you on the show, sir. Great. Thanks, Sterling. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.